Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening. Welcome to tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Alan Murray. I'm the deputy managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I've been asked uh, by the club to uh, remind you about their uh, website at CommonwealthClub.org. In fact, if any of you uh, don't happen to like the person you're sitting next to, there are all sorts of ways that you can virtually interact with this program you're hearing tonight. You can leave. You can listen to it on radio. You can download a free uh, podcast from the iTunes store. Uh, and you can chat about the program at commonwealthclub.blogspots.com if you'd like to. So uh, there are lots of ways to continue the conversation we are going to start tonight. Uh, but for those of you who do stay here in the flesh, uh, this promises to be a, a very interesting conversation uh, based on the panel that we have. We're going to talk about energy efficiency. Uh, what is it? How important is it to reducing global warming? or to uh, creating energy independence. Uh, How is the new Obama administration uh, in Washington going to affect energy efficiency? What are they going to do to encourage it? How is the uh, economic slowdown, the worst economy that we've had since the 1930s, going to affect the agenda for uh, energy efficiency? And how is the price of oil, now at $40 a barrel, down from $140 a barrel, going to affect uh, incentives for energy efficiency. All of that will be on the table with uh, three excellent guests. Jim Davis, who uh, runs Chevron Energy Solutions. Ralph Cavana, who is the co-director of the Energy Project at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And venture uh, capitalist uh, Tim Draper, who was founder of Draper, Fisher, and Jurvetson. I got it. You nailed it. Uh, uh, Thank you. And Jim Davis, I'm going to start with you. You work for Chevron. Chevron is in the business of selling energy, selling gasoline. Normally, when you're selling something, you want to sell more of it, not less of it. But you're charged with energy efficiency. Tell us how that works, and should we take it seriously? Great. Well, it's definitely something we want to take seriously. Uh, And you're right that, that Chevron sells energy, but Chevron is a global energy company. And our job is to meet the world's growing global demand for energy. And when you look at projections of uh, demand over the next 30 years, um, it's going to be a real challenge for the supply chain to keep up with that demand. And we believe it's going to take every molecule of energy to meet that growing global demand as, you know, the developing world uh, establishes a middle class. Uh, They're going to need energy uh, to fuel that growth. And at Chevron, we believe that the cheapest most plentiful uh, source of alternative energy there is, is energy efficiency. And so unique amongst the oil majors, Chevron has a business in Chevron Energy Solutions that focuses exclusively on energy efficiency as well as other renewable energy technologies uh, to help uh, customers reduce their own energy consumption, reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, It's a profitable business. It's a fast-growing business. How big is it? Uh, we're over $300 million in revenue. As uh, opposed to total revenues of Chevron? 
Uh, it's a small percent in terms of, of that, but you know this is a uh, a real high growth area as uh, more and more customers, uh, more and more of the of the general public looks to find ways to reduce uh, their energy consumption. When when energy is cheap and plentiful, the last thing people think about is how am I going to use less of it? So I think what a lot of people in the what a lot of people in the audience and people I've talked to would ask about an effort like this is they say, okay, is this about Chevron making money? Is this about Chevron making public relations, uh, or uh, is it something else? Well, first of all, or just trying from, to do the right thing. Yeah, it's a combination. One is that. Chevron Energy Solutions uh, is a commercially viable business, um, and that means that you know it's a profitable business. So it's not just greenwashing or what mm-hmm. I say because it's a real business. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, uh, Chevron is our single largest customer itself. Uh, Chevron has a huge energy spend running its worldwide operations, and we've helped Chevron improve its own energy efficiency by 27% since 1992, reducing its annual spend by over $2 billion. So you work internally as well as externally. As well as externally. Uh, Ralph Cavanna, let me bring you into this. Uh, 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 What do you think about this? I mean, your organization is sometimes criticized for working too closely with corporations. Uh, uh, but that seems to be part of your modus operandi. Well, in, in the context of energy efficiency, and by the way, just to be clear what we're talking about, to give you all a, a wonderful example that I like to use uh, that, that illustrates what's possible, you take the most, what was the most energy-guzzling appliance in most American households 30 years ago, the refrigerator, is today the equivalent of a 50-watt light bulb. Uh, and it got there by also getting bigger and obviously offering more features. Uh, through a combined uh, process of energy efficiency incentives and standards uh, that uh, California led and that the rest of the country picked up on. The question of how to replicate that across the whole economy, how to get much, work out of much, how much more work out of much less energy, is really the issue that, that uh, we're all addressing tonight. And removing barriers, the barriers to energy efficiency pervade the entire economy. Getting those barriers removed, I think, requires mobilizing, yeah, the whole economy, including Chevron, and also emphatically including the utilities. Uh, And and it's the utility sector, by the way, for for once, NRDC has no problem disagreeing with Chevron on multiple counts, but let's recognize that in the context of global warming pollution, the biggest single contributors are the electricity and natural gas distributed by our regulated utilities, and involving them in the solution is critical. The biggest single source, obviously, of of emissions for the rest of the economy is the transportation sector. You want the Chevrons of the world setting up energy efficiency businesses. You want them supporting energy efficiency in higher education. We're happy to call out very uh, very positively uh, actions like that, even as we want to challenge the entire industry to do much more. It is the sobering reality of the moment. If you look at what's happening, for instance, in the utility sector, where I do most of my work, that if you look at nationally what we're doing as a, a, the entire utility industry, it's the f- electricity in particular, fastest growing source of global warming pollution, 40% of total emissions today, growing at double the rate for the rest of the economy since 1990. The burning question is what can we, I mean, that's clearly going to be have to be at the heart of global warming solutions, even as the transportation sector is, what can we do to accelerate progress? And, Alan, my view there is we've got to pay attention to the incentives business gets because they're a critical part of the solution. So you have to work with business. Let me just ask you... Let me mobilize them. Challenge them. Let me ask you uh, uh, one question before we go on. We're talking... We're focusing tonight on energy efficiency, but that's obviously only one part of the equation. One part of the equation is getting people to be more efficient about their uses of energy. The other part is, are there alternative sources of energy that can uh, substitute for some of that demand? Uh, which is more important? Why are, we ta- why are we focusing on energy efficiency? Is it the right thing to focus on? If so, why? In NRDC's perspective is that energy efficiency is the fastest, cheapest, and cleanest solution available. It's not the whole answer. But the principle... Is it, uh, but you didn't say biggest. Oh, I, I'll ha- and let me happily add biggest. Fastest, cheapest, fastest, cleanest, cheapest, biggest. Fastest, cheapest, okay, and good. biggest. And the principle I want to argue for today is all cost-effective energy efficiency. The, the principle I hope we can mobilize around is wherever we can save it at lower cost than producing more of it, we ought to be going after that. Okay. We ought to recognize how far short we are of that as a society. We ought to make filling that gap an urgent national priority. Okay, so, and, and Tim Draper, I was going to ask you about technology, but let me just keep this line of, of, of conversation going, because then the next obvious question is, how do you get there? Do you do it by imposing cafe standards on the automobile companies and appliance standards on the appliance companies, or can you count on the market to get you there uh, by itself? 
Well, I think it, it becomes, uh, interestingly, maybe a less relevant issue now with the economy coming down. We're using a lot less energy. And at the margin, we're not using that barrel of oil. And that's the reason the prices of a barrel of oil have come from 140 down to 37. But, um, <clears throat> but I actually but that has But that also has the effect of sharply reducing any right. – the incentive to being efficient in your use of energy was a lot – Bigger, bigger when gasoline when was, was at four dollars a prices. gallon. Absolutely. Yeah. So the market forces are at work there, but I do believe that there are. St- it's still a, an important thing, at least for the U.S., to become as more energy efficient, um, but at the same time creating new sources of energy. And a lot of that is um, is not going to come from the government. It's going to come from the private sector. It's going to come from entrepreneurs who create new systems, new ways of generating energy. Uh, There are some extraordinary technological solutions that are going on right now, and they're building building a much better uh, environment for us. I mean, now people can buy the Tesla. Um, It's a cooler car. It runs just on electricity, you know, the equivalent of 100-and-something miles per gallon as opposed to, uh, you know, buying some big gas guzzler. I, I think there are going to be a lot of these uh, private sector solutions. But, but give us some insight into how a venture capitalist like yourself works on something like this. I mean, I was out here uh, nine months ago, ten months ago in, in Silicon Valley, and, and there was huge excitement among venture capitalists about investments in energy. But the price of oil was $140 a barrel. Um, most of those projects, which weren't quite economical then – aren't close to being economical now. Doesn't that change your focus as a venture capitalist? Um, it does. Well, we have to continually change our focus because the economy changes. We have to change. We, we constantly need to adapt. But it's entrepreneurs that come up with, you know, new kinds of energy. There's this solar thermal thing where you, you reflect light into a big jug of water, and suddenly that's one of the most efficient uses of um, of uh, Energy. I mean, it's one of the great sources of energy. I actually think that those sources are going to continue to uh, to come, and and that you can you can generate that energy at a much more efficient um, price than what uh, Chevron is currently using. And so, I, I do think that we've got a uh, an interesting opportunity here. Um, that was maybe a bigger opportunity when oil prices were at $140 a barrel. But it's still an opportunity. But it's still an opportunity without in a government lot of subsidies, ways. without government uh, uh, regulations or mandates. Absolutely, and I think um, most of our investing is is done purely on a okay. supply and demand basis. We do not rely on government subsidy, which sort of, you know, has has saved us from some of these. You know the the swings and uh, of the some government. of the solar investments, for instance, the rely on the, the credit winds of the <laughs> the winds of change in the, government. Uh, so, uh, Jim, let's talk about that because in Washington, uh, uh, they're now debating a seven hundred and fifty billion dollar stimulus bill, maybe larger, something bigger than anything we've ever seen in the history of not just our government, of any government. I mean, it's a huge amount of money. could be close to a trillion dollars by the time they get done. If uh, President Obama calls you up and says, Jim, I need your advice, we want to use some of this to stimulate energy efficiency, what would you recommend? Well, first of all, it's lead by example. Uh, the U.S. federal government is the largest consumer of energy in the world. So let's have a program to focus on reducing the energy consumption at U.S. federal facilities. And ground, my, ground all those defense jet planes would uh, be one way of doing that. Um, there's, just, there's, there's a, a lot also, of oil that goes into the <laughs> Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's also a lot of, uh, of permanent infrastructure uh, that is highly inefficient. Um, the one thing you'll find in, in most of the public sector as well as the federal market is that we have old bases, we have old buildings, we have old schools, uh, and much of the energy infrastructure is very outdated. And if you were to apply existing technologies that are available today, uh, you could, on average, reduce their energy consumption by 30%. And so... Wow. 
there's substantial low-hanging fruit opportunities to go into existing buildings with existing technologies uh, and find dramatic savings that not only uh, are going to reduce the taxpayer's burden on those facilities, uh, it, it is uh, a job-creating machine yeah. in terms of every time we go and do a project, there's literally deploying dozens, if sometimes hundreds, of, uh, of jobs to complete that project. So there's a lot that I would tell President-elect Obama that we could do just in looking at federal facilities uh, to, to stimulate yeah. the economy. Uh, Ralph, <laughs> now, Ralph Cavana. I've got a oh, yeah, go ahead, different. Tim. I've got a slightly different look at that. I, I, I generally <laughs> feel that, that, um, that the idea of taking a dollar and giving it to Congress versus taking a dollar and keeping it or letting you or me spend it, it's going to be much better used when you or I spend it. Um, but that's not, by the way, that's not the on, choice in the short term. If you have to have the eight hundred million dollars, billion, billion, sorry, billion, and it's oh, not whatever, coming, million, it's not coming through taxes. We're so, going to borrow it all from the Chinese, so, so it's a different <laughs> equation. So, <laughs> so a um, if you if you've got the eight hundred billion and you are the government, I think what you do is you take on the big projects, and that means that you take on repairing the grid, making it more efficient, but you also go after nuclear power, and I'll tell you why. Right now, we've got 90% of our, of our energy is from fossil fuels, 90%. About 10%, 9% is from nuclear power, and less than 1% is from all those other sources, uh, wind, geothermal, you name it. Um, so if you've got 10% from a bunch of old nuclear power facilities. There's 70 of them in the U.S., and, and that's creating 10% of your energy. All you need to do is upgrade those and build a bunch more and make them cleaner and give entrepreneurs the opportunity to figure out how to clean up the plutonium. You will end up with the most efficient, cleanest energy. Uh, you'll solve global warming, and you will solve um, the uh, the energy efficiency problem, and that is nuclear power. And I don't know why people are afraid to talk about it, but that is our. Well, solution. I can tell. I can tell. Ralph uh, Ralph Cavana is dying to talk about it, but before he does, before he does, I want to get a quick uh, sense of the audience here. Uh, a quick vote. If you think nuclear power is a big part of the answer to global warming and energy independence, raise your hand right now. Right on, and, baby. And if you think it it, it is not. A big part, or should not be a big part of the answer. Raise your hand. Yeah, the audience is pretty divided. How would you call that? Yeah. I think there's they were slightly leaning. Fifty, actually, that's that's uh, I that's think, progress. I think we still hold the majority. Go ahead, not, Ralph. But look, <laughs> you, you, Ralph, you counted faster than the rest of us. First of all, Tim gave an accounting for the contribution of different resources to the U.S. energy economy. He left out the biggest resource. The biggest resource in terms of its total contribution to the U.S. energy economy is energy efficiency. Uh, by uh, the calculation of, of our friend... So, so, Ralph, we could go back to the caveman days. Oh, no, hang on. We have no energy. Oh, Tim, and then, Tim, hey, Tim, the don't, don't be a voice. Paradise, don't, be a voice be to... don't be a voice of the 70s. Let me explain the, the extent... <laughs> don't, don't, don't be... Let me explain. This is the sense in which this is true, and, and, and Jim Davis knows this very well because he is part of this solution. Uh, the sense in which energy efficiency contributes 40% of the U.S. energy economy is simply a reflection of the, of the improvements in efficiency over the last 30 years that have driven down the number of dollars it takes, to, the number of, e of energy units it takes to get a dollar of economic value in the U.S. economy. And that's, that's our great untold success story. We've cut in half the amount of energy needed to deliver a dollar of economic value. Tim celebrates but that But you understand why like that is. That is and purely Tim, the free market that's doing no, and, that. And, and for Tim to say it's purely the free market overlooks the tremendous... The free market helped, but all, what also helped was efficiency standards, Tim. Cafe standards, equipment, standards. For refrigerators, for see, buildings. See, I don't think, regu yeah. now, I don't Tim, think regulation the average, is the solution. The, think of how much it Tim, has cost Tim, do you think refrigerator us. efficiencies would have improved because you would have gone into the market demanding higher efficiency in the appliance store? Because no, you, okay, no, but I would, no, but I'll tell you why Jim, they would. No. They would go down because I'd be spending less money on energy on my refrigerator because somebody's got a more efficient one. Now, as and, to, it's, because, and it says with, with, so, and I save money on my energy, okay. and then I buy the refrigerator. 
didn't say so till they read. But guys, so we'll, and, and, and I don't think that the typical new commercial building in California would use less than one-fourth as much electricity for lighting without efficiency standards to drive that progress. I don't think the free market was doing much about lighting efficiency in the 70s or today. Okay. But, 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 but Alan, on the, the nuclear question, it actually, Tim, after having loudly argued for the virtues of the free market and competition, suddenly wants to mobilize the federal purse behind nuclear power. What no, I, that wasn't true. You weren't listening what, to me. I, I, no, what I said was, if you are forced to spend $800 billion, and you are the government, yeah. you put it into nuclear power. What, what, I, I would generally Ralph, you say have an the answer private yet. sector yeah. is uh, President way, Obama, way more efficient. Okay, Tim, let him, President that. Obama calls you up. What do you do with the well, money? When I, so the first thing I say is... Well, I, I think... What, if you're, are you no, asking no, me? No, you've already no, answered. I think you told okay. us. I think you told us. So, guys, what I would do, first of all, with nuclear power is I there believe in a competitive procurement, the, the way that energy decisions, the most important way that energy decisions are made in this economy and will continue to be made with or without the federal subsidy on the power generation side is by utilities making decisions in a competitive market. And Tim has been very successful with some of his technologies in entering and winning market share there. Utilities do resource procurement by basically letting the competitors fight it out. In an increasingly competitive market in which everybody is going head-to-head, all I ask is that energy efficiency and renewables have a fair shot against the nuclear plants that Tim favors. And if asked if nuclear power is on the table, I say it's been on the table for the whole 30 years I've been doing this. Hasn't won any orders in the whole 30 years I've been doing this. Yeah, but, but would you be, would you, is it a good idea? Hope Springs, no, it's not a good idea if there are lower cost solutions that can beat it in the marketplace. And I hope Tim would agree with me on that. Jim, All Jim. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah, yeah, let's true, let, yeah. but there are not. Well, so I, you know, J- I can tell Jim Davis is sitting there just dying to get into this argument, right? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, so I'm not going to make you do that. Um, uh, but, but here's a, here's a good uh, a, a note of realism that's come from one of the questions from I think the Jim audience. Jim might agree, agree with me on regulation. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is no reason that we have the amount of regulation as we, that we do in this country. Would we you take gone, so? Would you we have take gone away from government you, being seven percent of our GDP to over forty percent of our GDP in hundred years? We're talking about energy. And that yeah. no, but that is absolutely putting a it's a huge tax, tax burden, whatever. It's a huge burden on us. And every dollar you spend in taxes then creates a new regulator who then watches over you, who then you have to carry on your shoulders in the, in the free market. So I, a I have a question for Jim Davis that's going to get him out of this uh, uh, <laughs> argument. You'll be, you'll be happy to know. Right. And, but uh, but it's, a, it's a note of realism, and you should uh, help us with this. Somebody says, when you say deal with the problem through efficiency, don't you actually mean abstinence? To hit the kind of climate targets people are talking about, you'd need to reduce CO2 by 90%. Please name any efficiency measure that gets you anywhere close to that. Mm. Oh, well, you, I think that's... That. Yeah, you've got one in your on your desk. So I just want to, let, let me actually. Let, what I want to remind I you, my, my friend, desk. Jim. Oh, actually, no, it's John McDonald's desk that it's on, and and I've been oh, I've LED. been there. So what I want to remind you guys, the, the, that was the challenge, reduction of ninety percent. Chevron did something great today that connects to that response. Chevron endowed a new chair of energy efficiency at the University of California at Davis. I think it's the first endowed chair dedicated to energy efficiency in the country. And by the way, isn't that appalling? But they did it. And one of, the, one of the things that I remember from the UC Davis program is seeing that one of the most impressive things, Jim, remember they, they, they rolled out a desk lamp, a six-watt desk lamp, which replaces a hundred-watt desk lamp, only it looks better and delivers better quality light. And so if you want an illustration of getting, using energy efficiency to cut electricity use by 90%, I think we just beat it. And all I ask for is an opportunity to do that across the entire economy as fast as we can, as long as we can show it's cheaper than the alternative. And I think that's the fundamental mm-hmm. principle underlying Chevron Energy Solutions, too. I know it's the fundamental principle underlying the UC Davis Energy Efficiency Center. Tim. We need a lot more of them. Tim, here's a, here's a question. Uh, we'll take time for applause. Tim, here's a question that comes in from the audience. It says, imagine you are a young, educated person, person looking to find work in clean energy. Where would you go? What job would you want? Um, actually, <laughs> here, I've got a list of companies here. Um, I, I actually think that um, there, is, there is a great opportunity in um, Solar Thermal, which is uh, this bright source company 
Um, I think there are great opportunities. And there's, there's a um, solar panel installation company um, that allows you to do it, in effect, for free in your house because it, it pays enough electricity so that you don't um, – your, your electricity bill goes down far enough that banks will fund – you getting a free solar panel on your roof. That's called but Solar Tim, City. I, 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 I haven't think there seen are a lot of great... Op- what I, are the solar panels made of? They're made of, of silicon. I mean, I haven't yeah. seen any solar panel product well, that pays on, off without are. government subsidies. Hang on. Some are... No. Well, this doesn't have government subsidies. Oh, they, yes. They can sure. take advantage of it, but you don't have to. And, so, and it still and it, it still makes, makes money. economic sense. It still makes economic sense. And there are two kinds of solar panels that you put on your roof. One is um, the the standard solar panel. One is uh, runs uh, water through a black tube. So there are two kinds. And so they and yeah. they both work. And they, some work to heat your you know so Jim your here's water a, and some uh, put your electricity. On. Here here's an interesting debate going on right now in Washington. Uh, um, there are multiple, you know, one of the problems with all these things is always there are multiple goals. Already on, on the energy front, you have multiple goals. Do we care about global warming or do we care about energy independence? Because those will lead you often to very different solutions. Uh, the other issue in Washington is, well, we want to do something that creates a lot of jobs, creates big bang for the bucks. And, and so they're analyzing these different energy solutions as to where the jobs are created. And when they get to solar panels, they say, uh, you know what? The panels are made overseas. We're not that interested in that. What do you say to that? Let me – let me, oh, go well, ahead. Well, I mean, you, since, since I brought it up, I might as well okay. answer. The, the, uh, the answer is most of the value is, um, is generated here in the U.S. But, look, it's a global economy. Anything, anything that creates jobs anywhere is good for all of us. But, but there, there is the, the difficulty with that, though, of course, is that then the jobs argument is is kind of a it leads nowhere because every every favored solution will point to the jobs associated with its installation and manufacture. And the one thing that I think it's important to inter- interject into the jobs discussion that's directly relevant to energy efficiency is that the biggest jobs benefit of energy efficiency is almost universally overlooked in these counts where you go to the site, whatever it is, whether it's a nuclear plant or a coal facility. Good, or we got him thinking nuclear plant. now. I, I like well, this. And when you go to the, when you go to the <laughs> nuclear progress. plant, oh, you, won't like, you won't like the way the sentence ends. When you go to the nuclear plant or the coal plant, what you quickly discover is this is the least job-intensive part of the entire U.S. economy because it's so capital-intensive. Most of the money is going into all this machinery. If you want to, if you really want to do something, <laughs> Wait a second. if you really want to do something second. for capital is fungible. You get, Tim, I, you put talking? in a big plant that creates a whole bunch of jobs Tim, to let, build the plant. Let me finish. Let me finish. The point is, Thank if you. you want the most job-intensive activities in the economy are outside the energy sector, and the best way to promote jobs in the short term, and I think this is the issue for the U.S. economy right today, the best way to promote jobs in the short term is to help people reduce their energy bills. So they have more money to spend outside the energy sector in more job-intensive parts of the economy. That is the biggest single jobs dividend associated with the energy efficiency initiatives we're talking about. And don't lose sight of that. Don't just listen to people go and count the jobs on their job site. Ask the additional question, what are you doing, if anything, and I think the renewable energy industry, Tim, does have a strong case to make here. What are you doing to reduce long-term energy costs so we can get more of that money into more job-intensive parts of the economy? Well, that's, you know, I mean... Jobs and money are fungible, but I do agree that I mean, if you do reduce the amount of energy you require, you're going to have more money, and you can spend it on other things. And Hallelujah, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's he's uh, absolutely right on that. Uh, Jim Jim Davis, uh, he, um, here's another skeptic in the audience. Uh, Ask the question: Energy independence for the United States is this realistic? Well, I don't think it's it's entirely realistic because we are in a global economy. Um, you know, you you look at uh, the current demand for energy. Um, you know, we've got to we've got to import a lot of it right now. What we can do is uh, reduce our reliance on uh, foreign oils by being smarter about how we use energy in this country. And I think energy efficiency to bring this back to uh, you know to energy efficiency. Um, you know, is a big part of this solution, and uh, I do think it creates jobs. Um, in fact, uh, 
you know, we've got over 400 employees, and I hope some of the young people that asked that previous question that are looking for careers would consider uh, Chevron Energy Solutions because best part it, of Chevron. It, yeah, thank you. Thank not you. Not the biggest. Yeah. Not, not the biggest. Not the biggest. Um, but, you know, every time that we, we look at an opportunity, you know, uh, we look at it on a holistic basis. Okay? So we don't think it makes any sense to put solar panels on a highly inefficient building. Okay? So the first thing we want to do is reduce the energy demand for that building through energy conservation, energy efficiency measures. And as I mentioned, on average, we find about 30 uh, percent reduction opportunities there. Then we can come back, and, and we, we call that part, the energy efficiency part, megawatts, okay, producing megawatts. And then we complement that with clean megawatts, okay, and whether that's solar, uh, fuel cells, uh, waste energy projects, uh, all those are, are part of the solution. We're, we're technology agnostic. Um, and what we hope is that some of the companies that, that Tim invests in, um, and we also have a, uh, a venture capital arm of Chevron called Chevron Technology Ventures that's also invested in BrightSource. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we hope that we can help get those technologies into the market. Uh, Chevron Energy Solutions is that commercial bridge. Okay? And we'll help those technologies as they're developing their technologies in a number of ways. One, uh, Chevron uh, is a great host for demonstration projects. In fact, BrightSource will probably do a demonstration project down in our uh, San Joaquin Valley oil field operations uh, uh, this year. Uh, we're actually going to, rather than taking that solar uh, steam to power, we're going to use that steam to inject into our oil field operations. Uh, so there's more than one application uh, for that. Uh, but you know, we'll provide the demonstration projects, um, we'll help put those technologies on the map because it creates competitive advantage for our business to get those technologies into the marketplace as quickly as possible because someone at the end of the day has to stand behind those technologies and their performances besides a uh, new technology company that may or may not have the type of balance sheet or uh, long-term credibility that most of the, uh, the large buying market is looking for. Something Jim hit on there that um, that I should I think everybody should hear is he, he mentioned that yeah we are a global economy, um, you know I think our problem there is not energy independence in America I think it is having a peaceful coexistence with the rest of the countries in the world and and we're getting there uh, because. Uh, we have so much business with everybody else around the world. And the more business we have with other people around the world, the more those geographic borders, I mean, the less those geographic borders mean. And the more our relationships are so tight that we, when we talk about we versus they, it's all we. Whether you're, whether you're in the U.S. or China or Saudi Arabia, it's all we. It's all us. And, and I think that um, trying to... You know, trying to solve the the uh, energy independence problem in the U.S. is is a jerry rig based on poor relationships with other countries. And if we have good relationships with our other countries, we're not going to have a problem. All right, Ralph Cavana, because since we're on the global issue, <coughs> sure. uh, 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 a person in the audience asks that with an ever increasing global demand for energy, what are your be realistic? What are your realistic goals in five, ten, twenty-five years for the kind of energy conservation initiatives you're talking about to offset that uh, growth in demand? What percentage reduction in global consumption can you imagine, uh, and how does that stack up against growing uh, uh, third world emerging market right. demand? So first, let's be clear. There's a lot of talk about the growing global and national demand for energy. The actual, the growing demand is for energy services. It's for the heating, lighting, cooling, mechanical drive. It's for the work that energy does, the useful work. None of us is in the energy commodity business except some elements of Jim's operation, and he'd be the first to say that that's not the core motivation behind Chevron Energy Solutions. The question, therefore, really is how can we meet at lowest environmental and economic cost those growing energy service demands? And there again, my plea for energy efficiency, I'm not here seeking a quota. I want all cost-effective energy efficiency. What do I think all cost-effective energy efficiency can do? Well, let's use as an illustration, ask, ask if, if we hunt about for an advanced economy that has less than half the global warming pollution per person as the U.S. average. My favorite example is the state of California. 
which no one equates with a state of self-denial or self-sacrifice, which has gotten there because of the very aggressive substitution of energy efficiency for more energy commodity in an unceasing quest to deliver more and better energy service. What do I think is possible globally? I think it is possible globally to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuel in half, which is what we're going to have to do by mid-century, with the U.S. leading well ahead of that in Europe. And all I ask for for energy efficiency is a chance to compete to do that with everything else on the table. I believe that energy efficiency will continue to be, as remember it has been for 30 years, the largest single source of solutions. And I think what we need to do now is get the competition underway. In order for that to happen, the Congress needs to establish the same mandatory limits on global warming pollution that the state of California has already established. See, you, had, now me, Ralph, you Ralph. had me until you started saying Congress had to mandate. Yeah. I mean, I think you – look, it's you the market that controls? solves the problem. Wait, wait, Tim. You're not against pollution controls. You're not against air quality limits. This is – the one thing that I think most of the, the – in many of the companies in which you invest depend upon federal regulations on pollution. That's what we're talking about here. This T is not the federal government Tim, taking over the market. Tim, here's, the, here's a question. This. Tim, let me ask you this. Here's a question from the audience that I think gets at what we're talking about. Uh, uh, why is it so important that energy efficiency be cost-effective? The cheap energy we are used to uh, used to is paid for in dirty air, melting ice caps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're externalities. Shouldn't we uh, shouldn't we be willing or have to pay more for clean energy? So, uh, so actually, it's not they must really. Have, they must have gotten together and written not that really question the truth. as a group. Um, it's not really the truth that you can't have clean energy, and um, and I mean. You can't have clean energy for less. Nuclear power is clean energy for less. And, um, and there are many other sources that are clean energy for less. Uh, and they, they uh, it, so, I mean, the market helps you decide this stuff. People get together, they say, gee, we don't want polluting cars. And, yeah, sure, one way of getting together is to go through the government. Another way to get, of getting together is, you know, peer pressure. You know, force your, your friend to buy a Tesla. Um, <laughs> well. <laughs> or Arriva, Arriva, which is a $5,000 car from India, <laughs> and it's, uh, and it's uh, very inexpensive and all electric. And, or, um, I mean, that kind of thing is it does happen in the free market. It but should there – the question is, should there be no. a price on the emission of carbons I, imposed either through a tax, through a cap-and-trade system? But it should companies that are uh, emitting carbon into the atmosphere have to pay a price to help cover the externalities? That's the, that's the fundamental question. Here. I think if you are um, solving a fundamental problem – it is then solved by the marketplace. But you've got to have And if there the is a fundamental problem, you yeah. are, for instance, creating a, a, a problem in, um, in clean air. If you, if you have a problem in clean air, the, the market solves the problem. Why, it how isn't does a regulation market, that did it? It was a catalytic converter. And then no, but how does the market, if there's no, no, no cost? No, no, you, 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 it you, wasn't you have your own opinion, but not your own facts. Of course it was regulation <laughs> that drove the... And Tim, Tim, you're not against pollution control. You can't be. The whole the industry... Although, it, although it's good for the sake of argument. But, and, and what pollution, <laughs> control, but pollution control is about solving a market failure. This is where we can come together. The reason to have these regulations is to price the, is to price the pollution damage so the market can sort it out. So, so the question who said, why does it have to be cost effective? Embedded in that question was the assumption we don't do anything to solve the market failure. Yeah. Of course we should price the pollution into the products. It's in that context that I'm then arguing for a competitive opportunity for the lowest cost options to win out because I'm very confident the good guys win in that situation. So let's talk about market failures for a minute. I mean, uh, Jim Davis, what uh, this was, a, again, a question for, uh, from the audience. What is the biggest market failure you see out there? Hmm. Well, you know, the, the biggest challenge uh, that we have is, uh, you know, pursuing, uh, and, and I'm back to the, thinking about this, this question of do these energy efficiency uh, measures, projects, you know, have to be cost effective, and... Uh, the answer is yes, they do, uh, because businesses, uh, because people, uh, you know, manage their money, right? So the, the money, the, the green stuff that you care the most about is the stuff that's in your wallet, okay? And that's what drives economy, that's what drives rational decision-making. So we as an industry have to provide cost-effective energy efficiency solutions 
uh, to drive down the energy consumption, uh, to reduce the carbon footprint. If they're not cost-effective, people are going to vote with their, with their wallet, which is they're not going to do it. Now, yes, you will have a small percentage of people who are going to be you know, green no matter what the price, uh, but that's, you know, you're, you're, not, you're only nicking, uh, you know, the, the opportunity there. Uh, so, you know, the right policies, incentives, uh, programs uh, allow us to drive deeper into the marketplace and capture more uh, of the opportunity. And is Let there- me give you an example yeah. of a, a private sector company that is solving the problem that regulation would otherwise force itself into. And that is there's a company called uh, Good Guide, which, which adds a price for – it puts a, an extra price on there. So uh, if, you, if, you buy a, if you buy a certain shampoo, Good Guide does the research to decide whether that shampoo or another shampoo is good for the environment. So Good Guide would then add, uh, you know, a multiplier. So say one was cheaper, but the other one was better for the environment. And Good Guide would add this multiplier, and so people would say, "Well, why don't we put? Uh, why don't I buy this one that's slightly more expensive because it's that much better for the environment?" And so that is where people self-regulate. It, it gets it get, it does get very complicated. Here's a great question for you, Ralph, uh, from somebody who's thinking hard about this topic. Uh, you talked about efficient refrigerators. Well, when does it make sense to scrap your existing refrigerator in order to buy a new refrigerator, which obviously consumed a fair amount of energy in order to, to, to make the refrigerator because it's more energy efficient? Uh, this is a, a great question, and it applies, obviously, in many equipment categories, and there is embedded energy in manufacture. In general, I would say today, given the pace of efficiency improvement, and we've looked at this on a life cycle basis, that if your refrigerator is more than 10 years old, I'd replace it. Uh, that is, you can certainly justify it based on the uh, aggregate impact on energy and, and economy uh, and on, in terms of your own return on investment. Uh, I have to say, by the way, that in, it, the reason I think that I am with Jim on the fundamental question that in the final analysis you want the cost-effectiveness discipline there. Because, but I also, of course, again, I want to price the, the pollution into the product. I would, I would like the environmentally preferred shampoo to be cheaper because the environmentally inferior shampoo is paying the full costs of the freight it's imposing on the environment. And I think that's where we need to get. But assuming we make progress there, and the, the last great frontier is, is making sure that there are... Wait, carb- so how do you make it cheaper? Well, so are for, you going to force regulation no, on no, that shampoo guy? No, I'm, what I'm going to do... And see, again, Tim, I don't think you're really against this. If we had not imposed limits on air pollution, Tim, 30 years ago, and when we, so in, this is now, I think, an accepted part of the U.S. economy. Everybody operates under these rules. You pay, right, you pay it, a price but, but to, in, to I, emit I agree, sulfur, I nitrogen. Agree, except and now do I you feel do with, that I do it had carbon. to be done by government? What had what government? Did it have to be done by government? Yes, in the yes, way oh yes, because because the market does not price pollution. Uh, and, and if you don't have the market intervening to control pollution, what you basically have is a situation where market... And, and, Jim, and here, there are a number, number of people in the audience, Tim, who are asking you the same question. What incentive would a public company have to increase costs or to reduce um, emissions without regulation, they ask? Wouldn't Calcutta or Mexico City have freely done so if reductions were in their best economic interest? Well, companies go out of business when they are overly polluting, if they are creating a big problem for the society. They do. In California. How about GM, guys? GM should be out of business, right? Right, and we're keeping it alive. The government's keeping it alive, right? Okay, and they, uh, I mean, those cars run slower. They run more pollution. They are not as clean. They're not as efficient. And they are run by let's let's they're, let's they're take a simple run, run one. by regulators. Let's take a simple one, Tim, because I'm very sympathetic to the to we know when we know that the gov, that, that when the government gets involved in regulating uh, individual industries, it's both often unfair, inefficient, has all sorts of problems. So let's take well, a simple one. You asked for a specific yeah. example. I gave you a specific. Yes, example. you did. So, let, but let's take a simple one. What what about a uh, uh, what about a uh, gasoline tax? Uh, and particularly, particularly when we're, we're going to have a $2 trillion deficit next year. At some point, we're going to have to figure out how to pay for all this money that we're so freely borrowing from China. Uh, how about a gas tax as a way to do that and, and have positive effects on... Well, I mean, that's, that's an easy answer for me because I would say, do I really want the government... Do I want Congress to spend that money or do I want to spend it myself? 
I, I would say no. Uh, how about yeah. relative to other taxes? You, you, you've got a $2 trillion deficit. Uh, I, I guess you would favor spending cuts, but, I mean, if you had to raise taxes to close that gap, where would a gas tax rank in your... Uh, Boy, I mean, it's just, the, you know... You don't like any of them. The, I really don't. So Jim Davis, how about a... Jim Davis, how about a... how about a gas use of... I mean, it's not well, it the prices most efficient it, use of money. Use, most efficient use of money is, is having individuals spend it. It is not having government spend it for us. It's, let's just face it. Jim it's Davis. Not. Somebody out there disagrees. Jim Davis. Yeah. Well, you go ahead, Jim. Yeah, well, you I, have the I microphone. Think yeah, I, I think it's um, you know, not uh, good public policy to do that. I, I think that reducing spending, uh, increasing efficiency um, is is the better route to go. Would you do you support regulations that require increased efficiency on particular industry building codes, uh, cafe standards, appliance standards imposed by regulation? Is that a better way to go? I think I think certain mandates, um, if they're uh, appropriately uh, developed, make sense. I mean, Detroit says, "Geez, cafe, well, you know, we have to pay cafe standards, but the oil industry." Doesn't doesn't have to do anything. Why is that right? You but know, that's, it's a that's single right. a, a single industry. So, so Al, let's be clear. Now, I think here again, Chevron gets credit for having supported in California efficiency standards for fuels. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, low carbon fuel standard. A really innovative and important way to drive down the carbon content of fuels. Chevron's been in support of that in California. It, it's a reminder that these are not alternatives to each other. We're not talking about either. So you do talking, both. We, you have you have both standards and incentives. Absolutely. And but you which both, your what, uh, which is the most efficient way? You want them both the to Cali- have the least cost on the economy. Alan, the California model is that you integrate both and that you are better off with both. So look at how we've done it for 30 years. How did we keep electricity use per person constant for 30 years when the rest of the country, including you, Alan, were up 50%? We did that by integrating standards and incentives, having them work together, having a utility sector that was mobilized to help people use less energy, using all of these tools, not treating them as if they're zero-sum absolute opposition. And was any of the California solution pushing energy production out of state? No, the, the, it, was exa- it was the reverse. It was trying to use California's purchasing power to change the way that energy production was done, not just out of state, but in California. One of our policies, Alan, is we won't make any more long-term investments in conventional coal, for instance, that doesn't dispose responsibly of its global warming pollution. Yeah. But, you, but, the, but you, I think, set up a false – you set up one important false set of opposites. You said that the, the aim to get energy security and the aim to get environmental improvement we're at odds with each other. And I want to be clear, I fundamentally disagree with that. I think that the strategy we're talking about here today is one more demonstration that those objectives, energy security, environmental improvement, global warming solutions, those are consistent. Well, if you, uh, developing oil Hmm. in in the tar sands. That one's inconsistent, Alan, but that's not the only, there are plenty of options that go at both. For example, if, if the, the, bio, the best of the biofuels options. Uh, how about use, drilling offshore? No, there are plenty of bad solutions that only advance one objective, but I'm just trying to get you to acknowledge there are plenty of solutions that address both objectives. Nuclear talk, energy. No, no. <laughs> well, no, it does, not, right? Not, it addresses not both. Al- not I, I know I'm trying to understand to the argument. Not, <laughs> not in my view, but the, but the subject of tonight, the fundamental theme of this forum, energy efficiency, Ener- is, energy the efficiency best, is, good for is the best illustration possible. So that's why we're talking about it. I hope so. Okay. Tim, Tim, I am, in, I am like inundated. If I get more, I'm not going to be able to see over them with questions about your nuclear policy stance. Uh, I, I don't even know. We got, I, mean, we got I don't know where to begin. Uh, Tim Draper asked, when, we will, when will we run out of oil? I'd like to ask him, when will we run out of plutonium? Tim Draper, breeder or standard reactor? I think this is somebody who really wants to know. Do you think it should be a breeder or standard reactor? Uh, uh, Tim Draper, isn't Korea... Well, bre- breeder reactors aren't working yet, so... I mean, the well, there standard, we go. We got a good answer reactor. for that one. I'll mend to that. Uh, <laughs> nuclear power. Isn't creating waste that is not only the deadliest poison in history... I don't know if that's a fact. I'm just it's reading the question. Uh, ...and needs to be stored ten times longer than any human structure has ever survived... Uh, but also, this is a long, long question, but also can lead to the most deadly weapon. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I'm well, just reading I'll, the I'll question. I'll answer that. Um, it, it is true that it, 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 it does create, we- it, I mean, you can create weapons from uh, plutonium, and that's what people create weapons from. And, it, and some of the out, 
outpouring of nuclear power is, from, is plutonium. Um, there are actually some nuclear power plants that spit out thorium, which you cannot make a weapon from. Um, there are nuclear power plants that spit out uranium-230, whatever, that you cannot make a weapon from. And, um, and so there, are, there is a solution here. Now, plutonium can also be disposed of. And right now they're burying it. There are some places you can actually bury plutonium. Interestingly, um, at the at the bottom of the sea in Alaska, off the off the coast of Alaska, within sight of the governor's mansion. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. um, there there are Just some to look tectonic over it to plates. see the Russians coming. No, there are some tectonic plates where you can actually drop um, you can drop plutonium. It will never come back in. Um, before the half-life comes, um, comes due. So there are a lot of solutions out there, and we have turned a blind eye to nuclear power for 25 years. Technology has moved along. Japan has 70% of its power coming from nuclear power. France has 60%. I mean, it, it's ludicrous for us to be at 10%. We, we are like a third-world country. This is, this is time. It is time. Uh, Jim Davis, energy efficiency, waste heat. What role do you see the capture of waste heat playing in the future? Uh, What percentage of overall efficiency can come from the capture of waste heat? Well, I I, I think capture of waste heat is, uh, you know, is is a big opportunity. Um, You know, we we advocate uh, combined heat and power uh, projects. We'd like to remove, um, you know, barriers to... Uh, making those projects uh, viable and, and easy to implement, uh, but th- there's a tremendous opportunity. I, what percentage? I'm, I'm not sure if I if I know that statistically, but um, we look for combined heat and power opportunities every time we're looking at industrial manufacturing opportunities. All right, I have a confession to make. Uh, uh, I've messed up tonight. I was supposed to every 15 minutes remind the radio audience that they're listening to the Commonwealth Club of <laughs> California radio program with a panel of experts about what companies and consumers can do to become more energy efficient. Our panelists are Jim Davis, the president of Chevron Energy Solutions, Ralph Cavana, the co-director of the Energy Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Tim Draper, founding and managing director of Draper Fisher Jurvetson. I could make up for my error by saying all of that three more times, (laughs) but I'm not going to do that. Uh, Jim Davis, should federal buildings pay market rates on energy use? Do they not pay market rates? Uh, to my knowledge, they they do pay market rates. Uh, that question. Actually, there's a good portion of uh, federal government buildings that pay wholesale ceiling rates, heavily discounted, down at a few cents per kilowatt hour, and as a result... I'd like to get that. <laughs> so I think we'll have the full pedal. Well, which might have, which could have something to do, which could have something to do with why they're so inefficient, couldn't it? Yeah, if it's... If they're that, that cheap, I mean, we're, once again, I'll go back to, uh, you know, if, if energy is, is cheap and plentiful, that's the last thing they're thinking about doing in terms of conserving it. Uh, you know, when our business basically competes against the cost of power, uh, you know, the, the price of crude oil, the price of natural gas, the price of other commodities has, has a marginal effect on our business. But really, it's the cost of electricity uh, that we're competing against. And so when you look out over the next 20, 30 years, uh, you see uh, trends that show that uh, electric rates are going to continue to increase. Uh, demand for energy is going to continue to increase during that time. And so it's going to take every molecule to meet that demand. But once again, I'll go back to the cheapest, most plentiful, easiest source of alternative energy there is, is energy efficiency. Energy saved is energy found. And if you walk through any f- building, um, and I, you don't even need to be an engineer. You don't need to really have technical. You can tell whether that building's efficient or not. You know, look up at the lighting. You know, look at, you know, how do you feel in terms of the, yeah, uh, well, is there some compact for it? No. 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 Uh, if I have any salespeople in here, this is an opportunity. <laughs> um, you know, but, but it's, it's true. I mean, most of the buildings you walk through are highly inefficient. And 
you know, there's a tremendous uh, opportunity. Uh, we've done over 900 projects, uh, generating over a you know, billion dollars in project revenues and, and, and savings, uh, 200 of those projects, over 200, in California alone. And every day I wake up and feel like we haven't even, you know, scratched the surface of the opportunity. Ralph Cavana, uh, a question from the audience. It seems behavior change is critical to get energy efficiency to scale. How are you engaging in understanding and measuring behavior change? I think behavior change is important. I don't think it is the only thing that matters. And we've been talking a lot about the importance of substituting, for example, more efficient technology, more efficient design in buildings and equipment. It also matters how, those build- how that buildings and those equipment are managed, without question. Uh, and there's some wonderful work going on. Every year, California now hosts a national conference of academics who worry about and, and, and uh, investigate uh, behavior and energy use. I think some of the findings that are emerging, uh, th- this is the one that I like the best. The most important, the, the way you can influence behavior the most effectively uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the American public, it's not to lecture them about how much money they'll save. It's not to lecture them about their civic duty. It's not to lecture them about environmental remediation. It's to tell them that their neighbors are doing it. <laughs> uh, and, to, and, to be, and to be effective in, in, in getting them to believe it. And the great success of the California – when Californians mobilized together in 2000, 2001 in response to the electricity crisis, there clearly was an important part of it in the sense that we were in this together and that everybody was trying to uh, do their civic duty. I'd like to see that. I, I make no bones about wanting to institutionalize that impulse, and I think it's enormously powerful. But I don't want this all to be about individual voluntarism either. And I think what, what has emerged, I hope, powerfully from this formula, there are ways we can mobilize ourselves as a community, as a state, as a nation, uh, and, and make sure that it's not that there, there are ways to make energy efficiency happen where you don't have to think about it. And I want a lot of them. I want efficiency standards for refrigerators to keep getting tighter. Although, for, commercial, yeah. for consumer electronics, do you know that a typical video game console today uses three times as much electricity as your refrigerator? We can do something about that. And I don't want you to have to think about the energy efficiency of the vehicles you'll be buying long term, or at least not have that be all, solely a matter of, of so. Of, of so, are you saying that we're going to take away everybody's video game consoles? No, we're going to make them more efficient. Well, but, gonna, but there any is more a... than we took away their refrigerators. But are you sorry that your refrigerator today, Tim? Are you really sorry that it uses a quarter as much electricity as the one in the '70s? And would you be unhappy if your Sony PlayStation were able to improve its efficiency fourfold? Ralph, I did a. As you said yourself, you know, it it takes the idea of buying a new refrigerator. It's got to be ten years old or fifteen years old. I forget the number. Your Sony PlayStation can be replaced rather more rapidly than that if we can get the efficiencies up. Sure, a lot less materials. Uh, Tim, people would buy a more efficient one because it uses less energy and costs less. This audience is not going to let this go. Here's a question for you. If there actually was a better way to dispose of nuclear waste, wouldn't it require a lot of regulation? Parentheses that you oppose. (laughs) Have you learned nothing? (laughs) It's going to take more than an hour to turn this group. Have you learned nothing here? Um, No. No, those solutions can be done by private sector entrepreneurs who come up with solutions. Those, but do private those sectors are... care about what happens 500 years in the future? That gets back to someone asked the time frame question. I think there's a company. I think, I think entrepreneurs. We've have, just we've just lived through we've just lived through a period. Head. We've just lived through a period where the biggest financial institutions of the uh, in the country showed us that they had a time horizon of about 14 months. Um, uh, so right, is I there agree. a time horizon so the, problem here? The, the entrepreneurs I know have a very long time horizon. They are trying to solve big problems over long periods of time, and they work very hard for a long time to make all of our lives better, and that is absolutely the case. Most of the entrepreneurs I know are thinking, how can we change this industry? How can we improve this for all the consumers out there? They are focused on the betterment of society and the Last, no, 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 no audience rebellions here. uh, Last question for each of you. Uh, If your great-great-grandchildren were in the audience tonight, I'm pretty sure they're not, but if they were, how would you, uh, what would you say to them, Jim? Hmm. I, I would say that, you know, the, their generation, uh, you know, really has to 
become the generation of of energy savers, um, of of understanding that you know, uh, you know, energy efficiency uh, and technology, you know, are the solution to continuing to supply, uh, you know, cheap, reliable energy, you know, to allow their economies and and their lives to continue to prosper. Ralph, your great-great-grandkids. Yeah, the the question is, are we going to leave them worse off than we were? And I think the theme of tonight's forum is the biggest single reason for optimism, that we'll leave them a better planet and a better economy. And not just, and and, and this is the great-grandchildren, I hope, here I want to think globally, as we've been uh, admonished throughout the program. And I just... Right now, the, the biggest concern I have is people just turn away in hopelessness at the scale of the energy security and the global warming issues that we are confronting together. This is our great challenge. Earlier generations have faced their own. There are, there's none more important. It's the, I think and it's, it's appropriate to combine them. Energy security, global warming, climate solutions. What I hope you come away with tonight is a renewed sense of hope that there really is a battery of solutions that attacks both attacks them faster and more effectively than maybe you knew when you walked in, and let's get on with it together. Tim Draper. Yeah, I, I hope um, that they are living in a free, still a free society um, where people can, um, can innovate and grow. And, and buy efficient refrigerators. And are not, um, and are not um, controlled by, a, by too large a government. And, uh, and I think that I am very confident and very certain that we will be able to uh, innovate and solve this problem and other problems for decades and and, uh, centuries to come because our world has gotten better for us over the last 100 years. Think about 100 years ago, we, we were just getting indoor plumbing. And now we've got a much better life, and it continues to improve. We have Xboxes, and it will, <laughs> and it will continue to improve from here. And I think um, so. I'm very optimistic that they are going to have a wonderful life. Great, thank you very much. This has been a great panel, and I want to uh, uh, thank our panelists. Don't clap yet, because for the radio audience, I need to thank them all by name. Uh, Jim Davis, president of Chevron Energy Solutions, Ralph Cavana, co-director of the energy program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Tim Draper, founder and managing director of Draper, Fisher, and Jervinson. Thank you. Thank you. No, no post-chat. Uh, thank you also to our audience uh, here and in the radio. Uh, remember, if you want to continue this conversation, you can do so at commonwealthclub.blogspot.com. I'm Alan Murray, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating more than a century of enlightened discussion. That's what we had tonight. Is adjourned. Oh, the gavel. Yes, we did. Good to see you. Great.